the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. Celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630 The Word. Visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Friday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, remember the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you're looking forward to a great weekend, especially on Sunday when you go to God's house. Uh, I pray that you will go saying, okay, Lord, what about me and what about today? And and maybe the Lord will show you some divine appointments, some people that really need to be ministered to. That's when church becomes really, really fruitful for you. As you look to bless others instead of looking to be blessed, that's what God's body when it gathers together, is supposed to be all about. Here tonight at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be opening a brand new New Testament book. We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 tonight. Uh, I think I'm probably going to get the whole chapter done. And uh, um, wonderful book. There's a lot in it for us, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. And then on Sunday, of course, we're going to be back in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study in the Gospel of Mark. We are right in the middle of chapter 10 this weekend. Wherever it is you go to church, let the Lord really, really speak to your heart to be changed. Let's get to questions that have been have come in while we're awaiting your phone calls. This first one is anonymous from our email inbox. Um, he or she says, for the last few weeks, my mind has been flooded with my past sin from years ago, along with the guilt or, guilt and shame from it. I repented and my relationship with Jesus has flourished since then. Why do I still feel guilty about something I know is wiped away? And what can I do to get rid of those thoughts? And then he or she says, thank you, Anonymous. Uh, I feel your pain. Um, uh, on our radio program here on KSLR, our teaching program, not this live program, uh, we have been uh, in the Book of Romans. We are in Chapter 3 currently. And I tell a story about my own life. You know, I was one of those guys that felt so guilty. My my past. Oh, I don't know what your terrible things were, but I can promise you they probably weren't as bad as mine. And yet, uh, when I got saved, I understood that my sins were forgiven, but I didn't really know how to cope with current sins. And when I would mess up or when the devil would push that button that, that replays all of the old stuff, um... Uh, I would do guilt, and I would apologize and repent and over and over and over. One day, I was reading in Romans chapter 3, 
was just me and the Lord, and it was one of those days when um, I was crying out, Lord, help me. I don't know what to do with all of this guilt. And as I got close to verse 24, verse 24 says that we've been justified freely, and of course we know we were justified freely um, at the cross of Calvary. And it was almost as like I was reading chapter 3, verse 20, and then verse 21. It was like the Lord was um, waking me up, like, like, get ready, get ready. Something's coming, something's coming. And when I got to chapter 24, and I can't explain this other than to say it was like lights that were flashing. It was like God directing my attention to that very verse. And as I read it, the Lord stopped me, the Holy Spirit stopped me and said, okay, you were justified freely. What does that mean? I said, well, it means that my sins were all gone, that I'm just as if I never sinned. And then the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and he said, when did that happen? And I said, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. And then the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And this was sort of a, a loving, necessary rebuke. And he said, if you were justified freely 2,000 years ago, why are you still carrying the baggage of guilt over the things that I've already forgotten. And I got to tell you, Anonymous, that set me free. And that was, I was maybe two years old in the Lord at the time. And uh, for the next uh, 29 years, I'm 31 years old in the Lord right now, I haven't done an ounce of guilt. So all of that to say, the way you have to deal with this is decide who you're going to believe. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there's no condemnation. You can substitute the word guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. And since you're in Christ Jesus and you've been serving the Lord, and, and your you, your own words, your, your ministry has been flourishing, your walk with the Lord has been flourishing, then you've got to decide, are you going to believe the word of God, or are you going to believe that voice that comes from an enemy who wants to destroy you? And I had to learn. It took me a little bit of time, but not very much, really, uh, it was so profound, that Romans 3.24 experience that I had, that when I started to hear that voice condemn me all over again, well, I knew that the source of that voice was the enemy. And I simply made a decision, I'm not going to listen to his lies. And it was just a decision. You know, God paid the price for our sins to be forgiven, forgotten, thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean. If he did that, why then am I going scuba diving and trying to dig them out of that ocean? I'm just going to leave them where he put them. And I got to tell you, I have not done an ounce of guilt, and I still get disappointed in myself at times. I, you know, but, but for things that I've done in the past, none of that has any bearing. Now, there's still uh, a, few, a few only, but there's still consequences from my past. There's still people in this world who wouldn't believe a word that I said because of the person that I used to be. And um, all I have to remember is that person is dead. I barely recognize that person anymore. And I rejoice in the presence of the Lord. And in his presence, we're told, is the fullness of joy. And so I choose to stay there instead of listening for it. So um, the reason you feel guilty is because there's an enemy who wants you to feel guilty. And then it requires enough faith in God's word to say, well, if I'm feeling guilty, I know that's the enemy because there is no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it's just a practical decision. Why am I going to spend any time worrying about something that isn't true? And you will retrain your brain and you'll recognize instantly with the help of the Holy Spirit when it's the enemy who is condemning you. I'm not proud of the things that I did, Anonymous. I have many, many, many regrets. Many regrets. I didn't raise my two sons to know Jesus Christ. They were raised by a father who loved them, but, but who lied and uh, really cared more about myself than, than I cared about them. I was abusive emotionally uh, and verbally uh, to my wife, who loves me and prayed for me for the 13 years while I was rebelling against God when he was knocking on the door of my heart. I regret those things. I regret that my boys didn't get to see what a godly man is really like. But we can't do those things over again. And in my particular case... The reality is that it has made me so grateful 
because I've been forgiven so much. I love much. And and I've just gotten more and more grateful to the Lord for what he's done. So I understand what's happening. If you understand what's happening, it's an enemy who wants to destroy you. Great question. Thanks very much. I'm sorry you're going through that, but here's an opportunity for you to have a great, great victory. And by the way, in First Thessalonians tonight, this is a book about change. Men and women who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were changed when they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be changed men and women. The minute we are introduced to Jesus and ask him to be the Lord of our lives, that's when that change begins. And believe me, it can be dramatic change much more quickly than most people think. It's not like you're going to be a mature Christian right away, but you're a different person right away. And people are going to start noticing that change. Thank you. appreciate the question. Here is our next question. This comes from Dubs from our email inbox. Um, he or she says, uh, in Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 36 through 38, why would this woman be allowed to go into this Pharisee's home if she was already labeled a sinner by the Pharisee? Do you believe the Pharisee was setting up Jesus to see what he would do? Um, Dubs, this is pretty clear. Let me read the verses, and then we'll I'll talk about it in a minute. It says, Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a sinful woman from that town learned that Jesus was dining there, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Then she kissed his feet and anointed them with the perfume. Now you can imagine, Dubs, the the um, the looks of disdain and disapproval on this Pharisees and the other people in the house. Uh, it wouldn't be just one Pharisee there. He had a party, and there were there were people there, and and they were trying to trap Jesus always. So that's probably the motive for the get together for the dinner. We don't know that for sure. I'd like to think that maybe, just maybe. Um, their their hearts were opening a little bit. We know that many Pharisees got saved during the course of Jesus' ministry. Maybe that was the case. Um, but this man's heart, this Pharisee's heart was revealed um, when uh, he looked at this uh, woman and, and, and thought, well, if he knew what kind of woman she was. Uh, and, and there was nothing but judgment. We know that from um, the other Gospels as well. Um, here's the thing that I love the most about this story is they couldn't have kept this woman away. This woman knew Jesus was in town. She'd heard what he'd been doing. She knew that she was a sinner. She had, I'm sure, heard Jesus teach. I'm sure that she had seen the miracles, at least some of them, that he was doing. And to find out that Jesus was there, nothing could have stopped her. She was bold. She wanted to be where he was. And she was recognizing who he was by her worship of him. And of course, Jesus understood that this was an act of true worship. He also understood that the invitation to dinner was probably not the friendliest invitation uh, of all. And, and Jesus just used this as an example, as he always did, to minister to um, the people that were there who were sinners. She didn't need ministering to. She came to minister to Jesus. Jesus already had her heart. But he used her as an example to the others who thought they were okay, who thought they had no sin. But Jesus demonstrated, using this woman, that they were wrong. And they needed to examine their hearts again. So, again, I don't think he could have kept her away. So they didn't really have any choice in the matter. Now, they might have laid hands on her and tried to take her out. But when she was there with Jesus, like always, he protected her. Good question. I appreciate that. Here is our next question on this Friday. It's from, let me go to, this one is from Carlson from our email inbox. In Mark thirteen thirty two, Jesus is the Son. 
He is God. He is a part of the Holy Trinity. How come Jesus the Son would not know about the day or the hour? Mark 13, 32 says, Jesus speaking, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, Jesus today, obviously, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and they, they know everything. So today, Jesus knows exactly when he's coming back. We don't know, but he does. But remember, Jesus' ministry, uh, there were things that he was, that, that were hidden from him. Um, he veiled his deity. Philippians chapter 2, uh, it's the kenosis of God, the, 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 the humanness of God. And Jesus walked this earth as a human, and as a human, uh, no man knows the hour, um, and so not the Son, uh, only the Father knows. And while Jesus was in close communication with his Father uh, during his ministry here, there were just some things that the man, Jesus, wasn't privy to. And this was one of those things. So, again, he knows now, but remember, Jesus made a choice when he became a human to veil his enemy, or to veil, I'm sorry, to veil his deity. And that's exactly what um, what the situation is here. Um, he didn't know. It was hidden from him, and that's okay, because Jesus, though he was God, he was also 100% man. And I think one of the important, in fact, instructive things for all of us is that when Jesus walked this earth, he did it the same way you and I do, led by the power of the Holy Spirit, with only the information that was revealed to him by his Father in heaven. Jesus knew before his humanity, and he knew after his resurrection and went back to the Father in heaven. He knew exactly the hour. But during that 33 or so years on earth, um, he absolutely um, was only told what he needed to know. Now, Carlson, I think the reason that's important for all of us is because we all think that we need to know more than God thinks we need to know. I always say that I'm on a need-to-know basis with God, and evidently God doesn't think I need to know very much. Uh, I would like to have a whole bunch of answers, but he only tells me what I need to know. And the same thing was true with Jesus. He walked this earth as a human being. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions on this Friday afternoon. Uh, this is a question from Kirby from our email inbox. Uh, why does it seem to me when I read Romans 1 and 2 that Paul has a change of temperament as he goes from chapter 1 right into chapter 2? The emphatic you in chapter 2 is so direct. It almost seems accusatory as if something has been done wrong very specifically. Am I reading this incorrectly? I don't think you are, Kirby. I think maybe you're missing it just a little bit because you've got to understand the flow of the book of Romans. Um, Paul's, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is the the most perfect legal case ever presented. And the case that Paul presents is that man is utterly sinful, And there's absolutely no answer for our sin apart from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he makes that, and he starts out in chapter 1, after the normal greetings, he starts talking about the condition of the world. And because the world was a mess then, just like the world is a mess now, um, Paul talks about um, the, the, the just condemnation for those who are who are living in sinful lifestyles, particularly sexual immorality. Um, He talks about the wickedness of the world, and and he's simply saying, okay, I've made my case. At the end of chapter 1, I've made my case. The whole world is guilty of sin. In chapter 2, when he changes to that you, now remember, the church at Rome, that was the center of the world at the time. The Roman Empire controlled things there, and and a Christian church in Rome would attract a lot of attention. And evidently, there were some sinful things going on among those who participated in the church at Rome. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, look, the world is guilty, but you guys are pointing fingers at the world and saying the world is all bad. Um, You better be careful, because if you're doing these things yourselves, the things that you notice are wrong when the world does them, but you're doing these things, how do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And the reason this is so important, Kirby, is because he's saying basically that 
there are a lot of people in Rome who are professing Christ, but who are living worldly lives. In other words, judgment begins at the house of God. And so that's what he was doing. Now, the reason this is so important to, to us, Kirby, is because we live in that world. we got a whole bunch of people that find fault with um, liberals, with Democrats, with woke people, um, with, with uh, um, aberrant lifestyles. And it's easy for us to point sin at them. But the same Holy Spirit that wrote the book of Romans would say, but what about you, Christian? Why are you pointing at the sexual sins of other people in this world when you're having sex with somebody you're not married to? Or when you're watching pornography, why do you think that's okay? Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? They get drunk in the world. Well, what about you? Are you drinking? Are you smoking dope? You claim to be a Christian. Why are you doing those things you're doing? And he's saying, be very careful. Now, as he builds this case against the sin in the world, in the next chapter, he's going to come to the conclusion that all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. That's in the continuous present tense. So what he's saying is, look, we sin continually, and we continually fall short of God's glory. And that's people in the church that he's addressing. He will say there is no one good not even one, none righteous. And we like to think, well, wait a minute, I'm a good guy. No, we're not. The only good in us is the Holy Spirit in us and the things that we do for God, for his glory. And so he's simply building a case. The world is guilty of sin. In chapter 2, he says, but, but even in the church, you're guilty of sin. And what we need to remember always is that that we are more accountable than people that don't don't know God. That's why judgment begins at the house of God. And we have this sort of casual attitude about our own sin. We're quick to point out sin in other people. But but we excuse our own sin. We're very light in the way that we deal with our own sin because, well, God understands we hold on to unforgiveness. We get angry. We use foul language. And and uh, I'm terrified that I have to say this, but too many of us, we just don't think anything of it. And Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul to us, just like he said it to the church in Rome. He's saying that you need to be careful when you point out sin in other people. You're guilty of sin yourself. Do you think, do you really think that God's going to let you off the hook? And the answer to that question, of course, we know is no. God doesn't let anybody off. Uh, He'll nudge us at first. If we don't respond, then he'll start thumping us a little bit on the side of the head. But if he has to cripple us, and by that I mean just put us in a really difficult situation to get our attention when we're guilty of sin, that's exactly what he's going to do. So I think it's this very discerning of you to, to notice that change of, of um, tone. Um, it's almost like, okay, we expect the world to sin, but in the church, these things ought not to be. And Kirby, unfortunately, we have a whole bunch of people in our church culture that um, just don't think it's wrong to sin anymore. God wants me to be happy, and this is what makes me happy, and that's just not true. Good question. Here's a question that uh, I, I had to do some research on because I hadn't heard about it until I got the question. It is also anonymous. Pastor Ronnie, have you heard about Creflo Dollar repenting about his teachings on tithing? Now, I have been on the record on this program in questions that I, I've received about Creflo Dollar in years past as saying he is one of the worst of the worst in terms of false teachers. And uh, he's a very, very wealthy man. Um, He has two jets. He's got two mansions. Um, He has made an absolute fortune um, preaching tithing. And God, you give to me, God will bless you. Um, And uh, in doing the research, it is true that he has said that he's had a revelation of grace on tithing. And um, all of his teachings on tithing over the years have been wrong and uh, inconsistent with the nature and the grace of God. Now, that's thrilling to me. Now, there's a lot of other teachings that he has that are really, really wrong. 
But but see, the Holy Spirit is going after his heart. Now, this would be a great opportunity for him to have a Zacchaeus moment. If I've wronged anybody, um, I'll give back, you know, what I what I stole from them. Uh, I haven't heard anything like that that would indicate that he's really repentant. Um, but he did say that he, he said, uh, he asked, asked everybody who bought his tapes, his books, uh, any teachings that he've done, he's done on tithing in years past, uh, he said he would, he would appreciate it if they would throw them away because they're simply not uh, correct. And um, his apology sounded humble, and I hope it's genuine. And I pray that the Lord has been knocking on the door of his heart and there'll be a lot of other false teachings that he will correct. So um, whenever we hear something like this, this is a time to rejoice. It's easy to throw rocks. You say, oh, yeah, it's easy for him now. And and we're suspicious and cynical by nature. Uh, but this is a good thing. If, if it's true, um, and it, it, at least the repentance part is, or at least his... Confession is, uh, these are good things. The Holy Spirit is at work in these last days. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630, The Word. We're taking your calls at 210-340-9585. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Friday show. Phones have been quiet. We love any calls and questions. Let's get to a question that is sent here. Um from Andrea. I never know whether to say Andrea or Andrea. Um, she says, it's hard for me to accept that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. I know you think so, so why? Um, Andrea, the, 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 I think the problem most of us have with people that are really, really terrible sinners, um, our flesh doesn't want them in heaven. You know, Paul said that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And somehow we think, well, I'm better than Nebuchadnezzar. He did all these terrible things. Nebuchadnezzar is a trophy, a testament to God's grace. Nebuchadnezzar's story, his testimony in chapter 4 of the, 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 the prophecy of Daniel, um, it's firsthand testimony. And it enables people like you and me, Andrea, to, to go to the worst of the worst, the people that we know in our lives who are so far gone that we think, oh, they'll never get to heaven. And I can tell them that, that, that God saves people worse than you. And Nebuchadnezzar is an example. And I think we ought to be happy for that. Um, I, I can't tell you over the years how many times people have come to me God is wrestling with them, and they're 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 kind of wrestling back a little bit. But but um, you, you know, God could never take me to heaven. You don't know the terrible things I've done, Pastor Ron. And I I, I love to be able to open Daniel chapter four and say, Have you done this kind of stuff? And of course, the answer is no. But God's grace is just as important for you, Andrea, as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. And whenever we get questions like this, it's typically because it's typically because we think we're better than they are. And this is an opportunity for you to examine your heart. I mean, really examine your heart. Now, you, I'm sure you're a wonderful person. I'm sure you're better than me. But but in my history, my past is so vile. That, that I don't dare accuse God of injustice by allowing Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. And I've always wondered why it is that we want grace so quickly and so urgently from the Lord, but we don't want the people who really need it to get there. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're right. I, I, I personally think he was probably um, one of the two or three 
right up there with Nimrod, um, um, most evil people in the world, in the history of the world. Unchecked power. An ego bigger than the world that he ruled. And yet I think, now this is just my opinion, Andrea, I think that because of Daniel's prayers, God set his sights on Nebuchadnezzar and did whatever it took to get him there. And, of course, we know that's what happened. So he is in heaven. That's his testimony. Uh, he believed. He repented. Um, and that's what it takes to get to heaven. It's not a, I did more good things or less good things. He believed. And so maybe you can reevaluate your position on the bad people in this world. You know, it's interesting to me. Um, um, there's a lot of people who now are with with the Internet. It's just there's so much bad stuff on the Internet. Uh, they're trying to figure out a way to get everybody to heaven. And, and yet when you say to somebody, well, well, I'm a universalist. I believe God is a God of love and he's going to take everybody to heaven. God's reconciled the world and, and, and Jesus died for the sins of the world. And they just emotionally, they have a hard time with the people that they care about that, that didn't want anything to do with Jesus who they know are in hell. And so they come up with a theology that makes them feel better. But anytime you say, well, wait a minute, do you want Adolf Hitler in heaven? Do you want Al Capone in heaven? Now, if they came to Jesus Christ, of course, they'd be there. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged his sin and acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Daniel's God, as God, and that's all it takes. I personally think, again, this is my sort of off-the-cup opinion, I think he's going to be Daniel's personal valet for eternity in heaven um, because Daniel, I think, is responsible for the prayers. Great. Carolyn asks, how long is the Great Tribulation? Some say it's seven years. Others say it's three and a half years. Um, Carolyn, from cover to cover in your Bibles, the the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's distress, uh, the time of judgment, the day of the Lord, all these other names for it, is seven years. Um, it, it, It can't be any more clear um, and yet there are, are some, especially those who are uh, pre-wrath. It's kind of a, a new way of looking at the Great Tribulation and the rapture of the church. Uh, they say, no, the, 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 the church is going to be raptured, but but we're going to go into the Great Tribulation. But before the wrath of God comes out uh, in, in the middle of the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation begins with the seals of God. Uh, All you have to do is look at the last verse in Romans chapter 6. And the people being judged know that they are hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. They know that he's angry. They know this is judgment from God. Uh, And this is the Great Tribulation. So the Great Tribulation begins at seven years. And the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, it gets worse. The... Judgments of God, we, we've got the, the uh, um, trumpet judgments and, and then followed by the bold or the vile judgments. And they are increasing in intensity, so it gets worse. But all of it, from the very beginning, the sealed judgments as they're um, unopened, uh, as, as they're, they're, they're revealed, um, it, it's as clear as it can possibly be that that is the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. So those who say it's three and a half years, um, all they need to do is read their Bibles a little bit more carefully, Carolyn. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Levi says, do you think that some people are just evil, even born that way? Um, Levi, we're all born evil. Um, John chapter 3, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, um, he says that we are born condemned already. 
We're born with a sin nature. Now, when we're born, of course, we don't have the, the power to sin in the sense that, that we're babies and we're completely helpless. But we're born with that sin nature and we're born to condemned to an eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. So, so we're all born that way. Um, you know, the cutest little babies, they smell so good. They they make the greatest noises in the world. And we look at them, we think, oh, this is perfect. He or she is just perfect. No, we're sinners. It doesn't take them long before they prove that they're sinners. So we're all born that way. I do think that there are some people that are way more evil than others. I think there are some people that open the door to demonic influences. I think that people who are influenced by drug use and abuse are are opening their 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 hearts up to to be devastated by the enemy uh, I think people that uh, are involved in willful sexual immorality um, I think their hearts grow harder and harder and in fact that's the only sin of which it is said God gives them over to their own hearts um, and then there are people that just have seared consciences or no consciences, for that matter. And, and yeah, they do really evil, cold-blooded, calculating things. You know, I was reading, and I'm not making any political statements here. I just found this terribly interesting. Um, today, Vladimir Putin, there was a, uh, a headline that said that if the West tries to interfere with, with my, my uh, campaign, well, Ukraine will be just the beginning. They, they've seen nothing yet. And I think Putin, uh, you know, there have been reports that he is sick with cancer or some similar disease. And I've even read uh, that, that he has less than two years to live. Um, nobody, um, I mean, there's no verification or validation of that coming uh, out of Russia. Um, but, but you know, it, it just seems like he is um, putting the pedal to the metal in terms of evil. And this whole campaign against Ukraine and the other things that he wants to do, well, we know all along that his goal uh, has been to um, reunite the USSR. Um, um, that's been his goal in life, the, the, the supremacy of the Soviet Socialist Republic. So um, all of that to say, um, you can see his heart growing harder and harder. And he's getting angrier and angrier. So, yeah, I think people are just evil. And Jesus Christ is the only answer for that evil. And uh, I think that's that's uh, my position, Levi. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Scott from Von Army on line one. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Uh, can you hear me okay? I'm driving. I can hear you fine, Scott. Thanks. All right. Well, two days in a row. I don't know. I'm I'm calling you too much. But, um, <laughs> no, that's I'm, fine. I'm going <laughs> to meet a brother in the morning, and he texts me some questions today. So I just, um, if you, whatever you have time for, maybe you could elaborate on. But he's uh, what he wants to talk about is the the doctrine of the rapture, and uh, I think I'm on board with most all of his questions. One he did bring up in the text though was uh, the history. As far as like 400 years is is how long I guess the church has uh, has uh, had this doctrine of the rapture, and if you could fill me in any on the history because that that part I really don't know a whole lot about. If you know something there, and anything else you would like okay. to maybe just mention about the doctrine of the rapture, I appreciate it. Okay, I can do that, Scott. Thank you very very much. I'm always happy to talk about that as we uh, um, open the the book of First Thessalonians tonight. Um, in the in the tenth verse, Paul says uh, he commends them for being eager uh, to see the Lord. So that was a church that was ready for the return of the Lord. Uh, a couple of things, you know, um, most of the time people don't say uh, four hundred years. Uh, they'll they'll go into the 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 nineteenth uh, century um, or in the nineteenth late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. And say, well, you know, there was a, a man named John Darby, and he's the one who popularized it. And then Schofield came out with dispensationalism, and that's when the rapture took off. Um, that's absolutely false information. Um, the, 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 the rapture of the church goes back to the very 
first church, the, 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 the apostolic church. And all we have to do is read the, the epistles of, of those who were here, um, inspired by God. Um, and we who are still alive will be caught up in the air together. They expected, the Apostle Paul most notably expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. Uh, we're told to look up, not to look out. And that's because Jesus could come at any moment and we need to occupy until he comes, but always with the goal of of his return. So the first century church was pre-trib, pre-mill in their eschatology, and it cannot be any more clear. Now, when people say, yeah, but the church didn't follow it, you know, the church didn't take very long to get messed up. When religion became part of 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 what's... Uh, uh, what the church became, they stopped looking for the return of the Lord. Um, you can look in the seven letters Jesus wrote to the um, seven churches in Revelation. And uh, most of those churches uh, were churches that, that basically got spiritually lazy. Jesus hadn't come back yet. They stopped looking for the return of the Lord. And all kinds of other sin and issues sort of developed uh, inside the church. And, you know, we, we always go back to the church, early church fathers, and I don't know why we believe this. It, it makes sense, I guess, logically. But, well, you know, those are the ones who live the closest to Jesus, so those are the ones whose theology would be right. Well, remember, it wasn't um, in the 16th century when Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis. So the church was messed up by then. We can go back to, to, to the 4th century. Uh, in 313 A.D., when Constantine um, declared Christianity the official religion of the state, or literally of the world at the time, uh, the the Catholic in the in the sense of universal church, and and you can read the early church writings, and and there was all kinds of heresy, all kinds of nonsense. We have early church fathers who took Jesus literally when he said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And there were, I mean, that's, that, that's not smart. That's not good Bible exposition. And so I don't know why we think just because they lived closer to Jesus, they had it more right than we do. And I get in discussions with, with people all the time, but the early church fathers this. And I said, let's look at some of the early church fathers' doctrines. And if you look at those doctrines, you're going to see that they are completely out of whack, out of balance with the Word of God. So um, the truth is, Scott, whenever we've lost sight of the Word of God, um, doctrine gets crazy, and it's always been that way. And I I don't know why anybody would think that, that they knew more than we know now, especially in these last days when people like us have seen the rebirth of Israel. Dry bones coming to life again. Um, I actually think because we're closer, knowledge will increase, Daniel said in the end. I think we're, we're the generation that knowledge is increasing. It doesn't mean we're smarter than people. It just means that we have nearly 2,000 years of history to watch and see the Bible come true before our very eyes. One other thing, Scott, and this is, um, I think, really important for people to, to evaluate. Uh, any doctrinal position that we come up with has to be consistent with the nature and the character of God. And it is impossible for God to judge, to pour out his anger, his wrath on people who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. God's not angry with me. He's not angry with you. Um, he's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Paul says in writing to the the, the Thessalonians, um, he, he says that... Um, uh, we're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation, but they will be destroyed. I mean, it's pretty clear. So uh, Genesis 18 and 19, uh, with the destroying angels, uh, Abraham is negotiating with Jesus. And, and, um, and he says, surely the righteous judge of all the earth won't punish the righteous with the wicked. And Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, well, I'm God. I can do anything I want. Um, he agreed. And so it's just impossible for God to pour out his anger, his wrath, with a capital W, on a world inhabited by Christians. And if, if I mean, that's so simple to understand, and yet we still want to complicate it. So, Scott, 
good luck with your conversation tomorrow with him. I hope that works. Let's go to Carrie from San Antonio on line one. Carrie, thank you for holding. You're on the air. Well, it's always a pleasure, Pastor. And I heard all this talk oh. today on the, on the show about evil, Nebuchadnezzar and all this <laughs> evil that's in heaven. And maybe you forgot. I'm sure you did. After your study on Nebuchadnezzar, I think I told you, I can't wait to meet my brother, Nebuchadnezzar, in heaven. <laughs> yeah. And this stuff yeah. about evil, the first thing I tell people now, about a month ago, they can share it, check it out. First thing I want to see when I get to heaven is evil to evil. He's going to be there. He's going to be there. And uh, they can check it out. Fact check it. And the thing, the glorious thing about all this when I hear this stuff is, is, is he or she who loves the most has been, he or she's been forgiven the most. Isn't that great? <laughs> I think that is great. And the angels, it says in Luke 15, angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. And yeah. uh, what a great cacophony of, of uh, uh, joy. So I just thought I'd share that. Every, everyone's going to want to see Terry. evil now. <laughs> hey, great <laughs> Thank job. you, Terry. Up today. Hey, God bless you. My pleasure. You. Thank you, Terry. And and Terry's been forgiven a lot. I know Terry, and Terry's been forgiven a lot. And believe me, he loves a lot. And um, uh, he he is used by the Lord to bring people. Uh, I, I I tell Terry his ministry is going to get strays, and he brings strays into church all the time. People get saved, so it's a great great thing. Um, two things Terry brought up. Um, one, you know, I, I think it, it's going to be absolutely fascinating to to, to speak with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, he's so embarrassed by all the things he did. I mean, now he's forgiven and all that, but but from a worldly perspective, uh, I, I you know I want to go to people like like him and a few others and say, you know, what were you thinking? And he said, I know, I know, <laughs> but. Um, he he really is. Um, I'm I'm grateful that God doesn't have a a, a line of sin. That he says no. If you do that, you cross the line. Um, he doesn't. Anybody that repents, as long as we have breath in this life. Terry also mentioned evil can evil. Bobby can evil. And uh, um, in in his last years, uh, I actually know the pastor that that was instrumental in leading him to to Christ. And, uh, boy, this guy was absolutely sold out for Jesus Christ the last years of life. Now, his body was so broken, uh, he couldn't move a great deal. But what energy and strength he had uh, in the last years of his life, he spent that energy winning people to Jesus Christ. And he would tell his testimony to anybody on any terms. And uh, it's just great. You take people that really, really live horrible lives and Jesus waits and waits and waits and waits. I'm really grateful. I think we get time for another question, so let me go to a question from Paul. He says, most Christians really look forward to being in heaven, but I actually love life here on earth. Is something wrong with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that for tomorrow because i got one phone call just came in, and we'll do that. we got Greg from Bolverde on line one. Greg, we got a little over four minutes. All right, that's right. I'm going to put you on the spot here in four minutes. Um, okay, I know, you know there's those teachers that talk about predestination and all that. Can you shed some light on uh, Judas? It's, it's, I know it's, it's not that he was predestined to do what he did, but it's if he had a job to do and God knew, Judas knew what he's going to choose. Can you just kind of expand on that and kind of put that together on, on yeah. Judas' situation? Yeah, I can, Greg. Thanks a lot. Um, you know, God never causes us to sin. He just knows that we're going to sin. God's election or predestination or, or just a simple word is choice. God's choice of us is based on what he knows. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses, um, talks about God's election is based on foreknowledge. So God knows what people are going to do. 
And that's why he knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus. Jesus also knew when he chose Judas that he was going to betray him. But that doesn't mean that Judas was forced by God to do it or that Judas had no choice. Over and over and over, Jesus repeatedly gave Judas the opportunity to repent. Even at the end, at the, at the what we call the Last Supper, and then in the garden, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss, he said. And Judas had every opportunity to repent, and he didn't. Now, obviously, God knew that. Jesus knew he was stealing from the money bag as the treasurer of the group. But God didn't make him do that. It was a choice that he made. And I think sometimes, especially when you get to, to, to the Reformers or the Reformed theology, the New Calvinists in particular, oh, no, you can't question God. You're just clay, and he's the potter, and he can do whatever he wants. Um, what he's saying is very simply, you know, I, I know what you're going to do, but you don't have to do it. Um, in our study this past Wednesday with King Ahab, um, God extended mercy to him right up almost until the end. And he, he extended mercy, giving him another chance to repent, even though he knew that he wasn't going to do it. So the point is that when we stand before God, we're not going to be able to say, well, it's not my fault, because it is. And he will own Judas. Judas, when he killed himself, he owned his sin. I betrayed innocent blood. He knew it. He knew his motives were wrong. And that... Um, Greg is is uh, uh, Judas' case. Jesus said he was the the son of perdition from the beginning of time, and so he he didn't repent. He was sorry things didn't work out, but God knew what he was going to do, and that was the basis upon which all of the prophecies about Judas. You can go all the way back to the Psalms uh, about his betrayal. Uh, God just knows everything that's going to happen. Hey, tonight we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians Sunday, the Gospel of Mark. I want to thank you again for 10 years. Tomorrow is our 10th birthday of this program. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it more than you know. I'll see you next week. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630 The Word. The Word to Stand On for Life airs every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life is sponsored by Calvary Chapel San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.